Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manus Chab, and my guest today is the principal of Hertford College at Oxford, a former British ambassador, number 10 foreign policy advisor, a celebrated author, most recently publishing his new book this month called 10 Survival Skills for World in Flux. Joining me from Oxford, Tom Fletcher, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Manus. Great to be here. So there's a ton of stuff to, to unpack today. Um, everything from this brave new world of uh, Zoom diplomacy to how technology is upending global order to the current war in Ukraine. Um, but before we dive into all of that, I mean, I've always really wanted to ask you, what was it like to find yourself in a boxing match with the mayor of Nairobi? <laughs> You've done your research very well. So, I mean, I hadn't expected that, you know, going out to Kenya as a young diplomat uh, soon after actually finishing here at Hartford as a student. Uh, and um, the mayor of Nairobi was one of my key contacts over there. And we were having breakfast, as you know, a young aspiring diplomat does with key politicians. And he said he was making this comeback. Uh, and I didn't believe him. So I said, look, if you, if you get back in the ring, then I'll get in there with you. I'll fight you. And he said, you know, he was raising money for an orphanage uh, in Nairobi. And anyway, I thought it would never happen. And then I was arriving back in the country after a trip away, and I, there, was a, there was a whole press conference going on outside the plane. And I thought, well, there must be some senior politician or VIP on board. And it turned out it was him basically stitching me up. And this, he'd set up this whole press conference to make me this challenge that I couldn't refuse. And there were people everywhere with T-shirts on saying, Fletcher goes home on a stretcher. And I had six weeks to, to learn to box and to have this fight in front of 3,000 Kenyans who I think were all supporting uh, all supporting him. Uh, my motto was float like a bee, sting like a butterfly. Uh, and we had this four round fight, you know, serious fight. You know, we really trained hard and uh, just about came through it. But yeah, that wasn't that wasn't really in the rule book uh, for aspiring young diplomats at the High Commission in Nairobi. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's just the best story ever. I mean, it's sort of, I think it's a good way to sort of uh, start the narrative of how you are as an as, a, as an ambassador. I know uh, someone you've obviously sort of been painted as a, a very non-traditional diplomat and kind of changing the front lines of diplomacy in that way. Um, but, but I think that, that leads quite well into my next question, which is that you were in 10 Downing during maybe the perfect period to witness um, all the sort of uh, talk we have about tech and policy. You worked for the last pen and paper, Prime Minister Tony Blair, the first email, Prime Minister Gordon Brown, and of course, the first iPad, Prime Minister, we might say, uh, David Cameron. What was that like? I mean, it was an amazing uh, four or five years working with three very committed uh, leaders, very different kinds of leaders. Uh, but I'm one of those people who, the closer I get to most politicians, uh, the more I actually admire the people who go into politics. You know, all, all, all three would say that they were they had their different flaws, they weren't perfect. Um, but actually, there's a commitment, uh, and you see close up how hard those jobs are, the decisions they have to take, the number of decisions, really tricky, kind of 50-50, 51-49 decisions every day, constantly exercising those judgments under huge pressure, normally when you're exhausted and being buffeted from all different directions by people who want you to do what they want you to do. So I have quite a lot of admiration for, for well, for all three of them, really, and having seen them uh, close up in those roles absolutely exhausting to be an advisor uh, in that space. You know, you're a mixture of a kind of policymaker, speechwriter, therapist, punch bag, bag carrier. Uh, you know, you do all those things in a, in a day, uh, but it's a massive privilege. And then to see 
other leaders up close, you know, from Barack Obama to Angela Merkel and so on. And to, you know, was a, was a lesson, a, a, a daily lesson in, in leadership. Mm. And it's just so interesting how, how sort of uh, the way you know, you're sort of focused on public diplomacy and soft power, how the way we communicate with citizens has changed vastly over that uh, sort of decade or longer. I, you know, it, it's quite, I find it quite interesting that the UK sort of uh, not too long ago seriously considered uh, appointing a diplomat to Google. Uh, Denmark already has appointed a tech ambassador to Silicon Valley. Um, you know, from your time sort of inside the halls of power, what are these conversations like and how close do you think we are to a point where tech diplomats actually become mainstream? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a really important question. And um, when I wrote Naked Diplomat, I mean, one of the most interesting talks I, I got to go and do was to was actually go into Google. And we were debating that conversation. You know, should they should they appoint ambassadors? What, you know, should they have a seat on the Security Council? Uh, you know, we were looking at were these companies starting to exert power in a way that a country does, in a way a state does, or a foreign ministry does. And of course, since then, big tech has only got more powerful. In many ways, the challenge now is actually thinking about how we restrain big tech in the way that we think about how do we restrain uh, you know, really powerful countries, empires and emperors. You know, how do we put the new rules around the internet so that we can protect our, our freedom, our security uh, online? You know, These are really important questions. And actually, the peace processes of the next decade, you know, there'll be there'll be peace with our planet, but there'll also be peace with big tech. Uh, you know, how do we translate? I think this is a space for diplomats to be in. How do we translate between big tech leaders and governments? Because at the moment, the conversation isn't working, sort of talking past each other. So it was a really fascinating time. And I think it was also a time, 2015, 2016, we were probably a lot more, many of us, more idealistic, more starry-eyed about the way the internet would change politics and government. I used to go around the Middle East saying the most powerful weapon in the Middle East is a smartphone. And of course, you know, Bashar al-Assad, uh, the Iranians, others had other ideas. Islamic State had other ideas. I still believe that the smartphone will make a huge difference to society across that region in time. But I probably underestimated uh, the opposition, the obstacles uh, to that. Um, but yeah, I'm saying governments, you know, I suppose when I wrote Naked Diplomat, it was a period when I felt that governments needed to get more digital. We needed more digital in government, more digital in diplomacy. Mm. We needed to adapt much faster in order to get our message across. I kind of wonder now, you know, writing a new book, whether actually it's the other way around now. We need more government, more diplomacy in the digital world. Uh, and so there's a natural journey mm. there from, for me from, from diplomacy to education, because actually education is upstream diplomacy. If we, if we get that right then actually the world will be a safer place, uh, which is what I hope, you know, this book can, can help contribute to. Hmm. And, and I, want, I definitely want to sort of explore that cross, crossroad a little bit more because um, what I'm most confused by is the sort of paradoxical sort of thing where on the one hand, you know, the tech revolution has enabled us uh, to see the rise of new actors that are far more powerful than many nation states. Um, and like you said, it's just very hard to overstate how much control a Google, a Facebook, a TikTok even um, can have on the world right now. Um, but on the other hand, it's empowered, uh, big tech's empowered big government. You know, it, it's uh, in a way that we've never seen before. And and, and often to me, China comes, you know, is, is a perfect example of that. Uh, there's obviously, you know, concerns around Huawei and TikTok. But I think another thing people aren't paying attention at right now is uh, they're developing their own, you know, central bank-backed digital currencies where, where you know, uh, it'd be very easy for the Chinese central bank to track how every Chinese citizen spends their money, which can obviously become quite problematic. So... 
Um, how do you how do you square these two trends? What are your thoughts on how tech is changing the sources of power, uh, and is it for the better? Well, ultimately, I mean, I think we're in this period of uh, of disruption where it's easier to run around to move fast and break things, as the as the expression goes. And there aren't enough people who are willing to move a bit more slowly and build things. And you know, I'm still quite uh, evangelical, idealistic, really, about the potential for tech to change the world for the better. Uh, but I think we have to get into this different mindset of how do we solve problems together uh, rather than how do we just go knock stuff down uh, and do it faster. Uh, you know, a lot of the last five, six years, I've been trying to work with tech, with big tech, on issues like global education. Mm where clearly tech has to be a massive part of the answer to how do we get education to 75 million kids out of school. But too often, big tech kind of approaches that challenge as though these 75 million kids were a lab to experiment on or, or just a market or, or an ego trip. And, you know, we, we sort of have to reframe that conversation so that they see this as, as such a key part of their business model to actually support these sorts of communities. Because I think the biggest challenge of the 21st century is how do we create more winners from technological change, but, but also better protect those who are currently left behind? Because otherwise we'll just get more and more polarization and, and inequality. And I think that's really important in the case of education where you can see, I went to California and you can see the kids of, uh, of the big tech titans are being educated to think about creativity, curiosity, social emotional learning, empathy, collaboration, working in teams, you know, and the danger is that, you know, the richest uh, most privileged kids on the planet will get that kind of education. And as a result, the robots will work for them, but so will the rest of us, uh, because most of our kids are still getting an, edu an education, which is much, which is built from 19th century economy and is teaching kids the skills and the knowledge which will be automated in a decade. Mm. I think your sort of focus on education is quite interesting because I find that a lot of other people who talk about these issues um, don't come to as optimistic a view because they consider other things. I mean, uh, a lot of your work reminds me of uh, Yuval Noah Harari, the, the Israeli sort of historian. Um, and his big thesis is that data is the new source of political power. Uh, and as such, you know, he thinks very realistically that in the near future, AI might threaten to destroy liberal democracy. And I'm curious to think how you think that, you know, narrative might become particularly particularly relevant uh, in the current war in Ukraine. Um, do, do you see, in, what, in what sort of ways do we see, do you think, both sides mobilizing tech to their advantage? And is that is that a benefit? It's a really key question. And I suppose we're watching it playing out uh, in front of us. Uh, bizarrely, I was actually giving a talk in London on Tuesday night. Uh, as you know, the news from Ukraine was starting to filter through, and it, as it was becoming clearer that, that Putin was going to go ahead and invade. Um, and I was giving a talk on, on soft power, uh, which sort of felt quite ironic, really, because we were seeing in the background this immense demonstration of hard power, military might, you know, proper kind of old school 19th century maps and chaps statecraft from Putin. And so I think, I think there is a reflection there about the limits of soft power, the limits of a model where we like to promote the magnetism of our societies. And I believe, you know, that's what will really help countries succeed in the 21st century, um, Britain included. And, you know, Britain has got to be very careful to remain magnetic 
and not to become repellent, of course. Um, but, you know, out there, it's, it's still, a lot, to a large extent, a hard power world. Probably more than a decade ago, it's a hard power world. And certainly Russia thinks in that way. China thinks in that way. But many other emerging powers do uh, as well. So it's going to be fascinating to see who wins that, uh, the information space. A week ago, I think I, I, I would have been much more pessimistic about the ability of, um, of Ukraine to really push back into that space, given how much preparation Russia has had for this conflict. Uh, they're actually badly losing the, the information war. They're badly losing the propaganda war. You know, it's, it's uh, President Zelensky, who's all over, all over my phone, uh, and who is becoming this sort of global Robin Hood figure, this global kind of resistance hero. Uh, and the Russians just seem to be very slow moving in that space, which is, I mean, it, it fascinates me. Um, and so there's a lot to play for. Mm. It's, it's interesting as well, because I think Peter Ricketts recently made the point that, you know, we, we don't quite see Russia mobilizing sort of domestic public opinion um, as as we'd, we'd think they would in an invasion of this scale. Um, and, and certainly, you know, that sort of soft power advantage that Ukraine might have is, is we're seeing it in, in front of our eyes. Um, and another interesting example, I saw this on Twitter uh, a couple of days ago. I mean, uh, you know, it kind of connects us to this rise of uh, citizen actors uh, in international relations where Elon Musk promised to uh, help divert some sort of Starlink resources, essentially uh, help, you know, put up uh, Wi-Fi capacity for Ukraine if that, you know, uh, if there's a sort of major shutdown, which there has been. So. Um, it, it can seem to play almost in both directions, uh, almost to, you know, increasing fake news and fake information and uh, harming uh, the sort of civil discourse of society, but also to, to sort of buttress it. Um, you know, you've poured lots of ink on sort of using social media um, as an effective tool of diplomacy. If you were, say, an advisor still to the British government or the American government, um, what would you advise them to do in the case of the current war? So I think social media is a key part of that. And uh, there's a lot that can be done now, and I was trying to do it as ambassador in Lebanon as well, to, to talk past government elites and directly to a population. And you can see people doing that for malign reasons. And, you know, I put Donald Trump in, in that category, but he did it very effectively. Mm. He can really mobilise the base uh, through social media. I'd like to see us being quite innovative and, and experimental about how you can actually have that conversation and really mobilise the public mobilize, as you say, citizen diplomats, because you know you see the effect that's happening in uh, having in Ukraine, but you also see the way that public opinion in the West now is driving policy to an extent it wasn't a week ago. You know, it's ahead of policy at the moment. Real pressure on governments to uh, to move. So there's there's great potential in that space. the The risk is uh, that. Some of the social media can be can can fall into virtual virtue signaling at times. So, I mean, I think it's great that we that we fly the Ukrainian flag and that we, uh, you know, use the right hashtags and all the rest of it. But it has to be accompanied by real substance, otherwise it will look uh, a bit feeble. And so, you know, it's all it's it's great to put the Ukrainian flag up above an embassy, but then you also have to make sure that you are making it very easy for Ukrainian refugees to get refuge. In the UK, uh, it's it's great to put out a hashtag about the need to isolate Russia, but then you've really got to take mm. proper measures to go after the oligarchs and properly sanction uh, them, even when that causes you economic damage. You know, see, 
I don't think you can just do the social media side without having the real substance behind it as well. Right. And I think in these sorts of conversations, I mean, we obviously want the West to use social media really effectively, but um, what I've often seen emerge from it uh, in, in sort of previous discourse is this often sort of sometimes a Eurocentric tendency, one might say, for uh, to kind of distinguish the West as this continuing bastion of you know freedom and democracy uh, that could never use big tech in a way, say, China or Russia could. And I think uh, the events of the last, say, five years and the congressional hearings of Facebook have, have well uh, shown that that kind of narrative is quite flawed. Definitely. Uh, there's, a know, big need, there's a big need in the midst of all that for much, much more humility. And if we've learned anything from the last five, five, six, seven years, and from that kind of disastrous Trump experiment when, you know, an election for leader of the free world created a vacancy for leader of the free world, a guy determined to prove his critics right, uh, you know, we, we should all come out of that much, much more humble. But also in the background, you know, movements like the Me Too movement, like Black Lives Matter, which have really forced the West to think about inherited inequality and to think about inherited privilege in a different way. Mm. Uh, the most depressing thing, I mean, apart from Putin at the moment, but the most depressing thing in terms of the, the social media debate about Ukraine is when you see people popping up and saying, well, this matters more to us because it's somehow in the civilized world or because it's in Europe. You know, that, mm. that is, I find that pretty upsetting, uh, pretty troubling that you can still hear that sort of line coming from some Western commentators. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you made a really interesting point in, in your in your recent book uh, that I didn't know about before. Um, there was there's a British sort of parliamentary commission that uh, invited Mark Zuckerberg, they called him Mark Zuckerberg, to for for a hearing, uh, and uh, then he declined. And then they asked to go to him, and he sent an underling. Um, that's very jarring to me. Uh, you know, is, is that, would you say, firstly, is that an anomaly or is that representative of the sort of direction we're heading in in the relationship between big tech and government? Um, and if so, how, you know, what can, what can your average citizen do uh, to help the government, uh, you know, rein in big tech? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was a, it was a real moment, a real, a very striking moment of, it, that demonstrated the way that power is shifting and how difficult it is to hold the new emperors to account to show them, you know, that the lesson from the old emperors is that empires fall uh, unless they, you know, unless they show humility, unless they allow themselves to be held to account. Um, and, you know, I, I saw it elsewhere. You know, we we put together this letter. Two hundred plus tech leaders wrote to the UN asking them to put rules in place to restrain the use of lethal autonomous weapons. And it's and it took months, maybe years to work with the UN to even decide who would draft the reply to that letter. You know, because at the moment, big tech completely outguns governments in terms of its, the resources at its disposal, its agility. And when you sit down, you know, I went and I spoke at a meeting of uh, EU defence ministers and was very struck by how few of them really understand tech. And so there's a natural insecurity there. You know, they're entering a conversation about AI, for example, many of them without really understanding what it actually is. And so that does put them at a massive disadvantage when uh, when coming up against uh, tech. So we really do have to find ways to, to hold these companies and these individuals uh, to account, to update the rules, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the laws, the norms of society for this new tech. Because many of them are saying, you know, we're creating, we're creating tech faster than we can manage it. You know, you need to help us, help us restrain ourselves. And I feel it's a bit like that period after the invention of the uh, 
printing press, when there was a sort of cacophony of libel and slander and noise and polarization before the rules evolved to contain this new technology. And um, the problem now is that the, the tech is, is moving at such a pace uh, that by the time you start even reflecting on how to update the rules, you know, they've mo- it's moved on. Mm. No, it's, it's, it's very scary. Um, sort of end off on a little bit of an optimistic note. I mean, we focus our discussion primarily on, uh, you know, your bestseller books, but I think I'm a much bigger fan of this other book you've been writing or perhaps collating, um, you know, for well over a decade, uh, collecting advice for some of the brightest minds on the planet for your son, Charlie. Um, <laughs> the listeners of this podcast uh, are probably slightly older than Charlie, but but not by much. Um, can you tell me about this project? But but more importantly, I mean, if you had to le- leave our listeners with one you know nugget of wisdom uh, that you've sort of found in that in that book, what would that be? So yeah, I mean that that book is a lifetime uh, project, and and what I've done is 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 when I've been privileged to be close up with with leaders, I've got them to write a page or so in the book, and you know Bill Clinton wrote his out in draft. George Bush took the book off and uh, and then sent it back three months later. Barack Obama said, Charlie will either be very rich or very clever, depending on whether he sells the book or or reads the book. So it's a brilliant uh, a brilliant project. In a way, it culminates in this book, 10 Survival Skills for a World in Flux, which is trying to sort of put some of that advice out there in more detail to try and pass on some of the best that I think, best things I've learned in my life, but also I've heard from others or learned from my ancestors. Ultimately, that's what education is. It's about passing on the best stuff we've learned to our descendants. I think in the midst of all that, I've been very struck by this idea about what it means to be a good ancestor. And I think that a lot of people, especially younger people, uh, are told the whole time to define themselves in terms of what goes on their CV, you know, what goes on their resume, because they're always trying to get the next qualification, trying to get the next job and so on. So it's understandable that becomes a real focus. But actually, it's better to live a life defined on the basis of what people will say about you at the end of your life, you know, what will be in your obituary, or maybe even what will be in your eulogy, what will people stand up and say about you at your funeral. And I think just, just thinking through what that means, in itself helps you to live a life of, of greater purpose. But you can basically distill all the advice in that book, in, in that book of advice for Charlie, into just three things, you know, and it's the three things that my parents said to me when I was a kid, and that I try and say to my kids now, be kind, be curious, be brave. Beautiful. Now, what an inspiring note to end on. Uh, incredibly fascinating discussion, Tom, one I'm sure our listeners will keep thinking about uh, in the next couple of months. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Manas. Real pleasure. And uh, see you soon. And to find out more about London Politica, please visit our website, londonpolitica.com, and follow us on, on LinkedIn. Uh, that's all for this episode. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I will see you next week.